0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Douglas Cass with Seabreeze Now. Uh, on caution in the market. Doug, where are you in your trading right now? Are you, you know, doom and gloom short, or are you doing something different?
1: No, I'm doing something different. I'm still carrying a small net long exposure with a plan, Tom and John, to short strength as the S&P rises to what I believe to be the top end of the range, which is, you know, another 50 S&P points or so. Look, my forward-looking concerns are plentiful. Uh, Trade wars, the message of the bond market, as well as the message of the bank stock market, the rising ambiguity of global economic growth, the possible repudiation of the so-called synchronized global economic recovery, um, the rising geopolitical risk, particularly in Europe, where the immigration issue is dividing the EU and splintering some of the entrenched parties, and also, most importantly, the possibility of policy mistakes of both the White House and the the Fed at the latter
0: what 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 I want to talk about is the wall of doom and gloom literature that's out right now. The world's coming to an end. You read it, like I read it. We both try to ignore it as we try to think about what we're going to do with investment. My major thesis is corporations adapt, like a Boeing doing a JV with you know a dominant manufacturer in Brazil. Do you still see corporations adapting? To the different economics and finance that's out there, are they adapting in a constructive way? I
1: think they're adapting, um, but um, policy remains foremost in my concern on the front, front burner. Uh, you know, history has proven that one trade tariff begets another than another until you get a full-blown trade war. No one ever wins, and the consumer seems to always get screwed. Uh, currency wars often lead to trade wars and vice versa, which in turn can devolve into hot wars. So that cooperation, which you described, uh, may be, um, in my view, rather short-lived. Um, I, I told you in the past, and I've told John and Penn in the past, that that I approach each day asking three important questions as it relates to your example of Boeing. We live in a, pa- a paperless and cloudy world. Are investors and citizens as safe as the markets assume we are? And my answer is no. Secondly, we're in a flat and interconnected world. Is it even possible for America to be an oasis of prosperity and a driver of engine of global economic growth? And I don't believe so. Mm-hmm. And finally, most important as it relates to Trump and the administration, with the GE political coordination at an all-time low, getting back to what Kaplan was talking about in the last segment. How slow and inept will the reaction be if the wheels do come off? And what does it mean for global trade and economic growth?
2: Doug, is that something that the United States economy could be insulated from? And I'm just wondering, if you become more defensive um, just in terms of your investments? What is the most the optimal way of being defensive. And can you keep along on the S&P 500, given that over the last couple of months, it has been somewhat resilient?
1: Yeah, I understand. But we're to me, we're in this vortex of uncertainty, and certainly in a new regime of volatility. Um, uh, monetary policy around the world has suppressed volatility, and that's, that's changing. We're going to soon see the end of uh, the ECB's QE by year-end, with uh, with it being cut half in half in three months. This is a really big <clears throat> deal, John, as liquidity yeah. becomes a drain both here and over there. So I think to summarize, last year, 2017, was a year of hope in which the S&P's index valuation experienced almost a three-handle valuation increase. And basically, Wall Street triumphed over Main Street. And this year is a year of reality in which we're seeing contraction, compression, and multiples. Main Street is triumphing over Wall Street. It's what happens. You know, uh, Charlie Munger had a great quote. He said, it's not supposed to be easy. Anyone who finds it easy is stupid. And I think a lot of people that are looking – uh, and saying there's an absence of uncertainty are really applying first-level thinking and not second-level thinking.
0: With this Douglas Cass of Seabreeze, with a short-term perspective, for most of us on our, you know, in our lives, we're not trading or positioning as maybe Mr. Cass is, but it's always interesting to get the whims out there. Doug, what is your interpretation of the media uh, event, Fox, Disney, Comcast? How do you interpret that? How do you screen that?
1: Well, I have two exposures. I've been short Disney, um, but not because of that event, uh, not because the uh, possible acquisition of Fox by Disney. I've been short Disney because I thought that the company's secular growth rate was probably half of the 18% historical rate when uh, Wall Street consensus was still looking for m- mid-teens sort of annual growth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm long Comcast, and I bought it uh, after Comcast fell from about 43 to 31, on the basis that Roberts uh, has, you know, who has all of his family's net worth, and Comcast, Comcast, is not going to totally shoot himself in the foot.
0: Yeah, but if he goes out, Doug, what's so interesting here on a net present value, and folks, I hate to say this, but Cass is really good at moving the numbers around. He'll never admit it, including the Red Sox one game ahead of the Yankees. But, Doug, what I would point out here is the private equity slash sovereign wealth plug that Mr. Roberts may get is essentially free money, isn't it? Yes, it is. I mean, it's like a plug-in. John, this is really important. In the Newtonian mechanics of this game, it's like a slug or plug-in of just cash. Right, Doug?
1: Yes, and I do think that the, that the incremental free cash flow, whether Com- Comcast or Disney gets Fox, is enough that um, while the near-term uh, uh, debt-to-enterprise value That they're paying is large; it will be paid off in a reasonably short time. And remember, Roberts is using—he's not using a forever perspective like Warren Buffett, but he's—you know—he's thinking intermediate. Yeah, but John,
0: it's so. He's not day
1: trading Fox.
0: Exactly, but John, what's so important here is Mr. Roberts may have forever money, which is what sovereign wealth funds are like.
2: Yeah, maybe, but the uh, the short term day traders so to speak or the investors in the stock right now every time this deal looks less likely um doug comcast rallies what does that say
1: i don't think that i, I as I, as i said before john i don't think they're going to sh- robbers is going to shoot himself on the foot and pay a ridiculous price i think that that comcast ends up with sky disney ends up with fox comcast shares trade back up to the high 30s and comcast initiates Reinitiates, um, reestablishes its uh, buyback program. So that's why I'm in Comcast.
3: Gotcha.
2: That spat out quite clearly. Thank you, dusk And just going forward, do you see more companies like what we're seeing in media at the moment leverage the balance sheet? And do you think now is a good time to do that?
1: I, yeah, I think there are, John, there are two industries that have to be rationalized the media business and the consumer package good business. And you see it in uh, Nelson Peltz going af- after Procter and Gamble. You see it in Dan Loeb uh, and others attracted to Campbell Soup, which I've mentioned in the past uh, to Tom as one of my holdings. Um, and um, all these businesses have to be rationalized. Uh, you need synergies. You need cut in cuts in the uh, fixed cost structure in order to survive. The yeah. secular change in the case of media, you know what the changes are, the cord cutting. In the case of consumer packaged goods, um, it's just um, yeah. a move towards healthy products and generic competition right. in Amazon.
0: Doug, one final question, and you've always been very collegial about the battle of, you know, the struggle of making and losing money. Mr. Einhorn, the great hedge fund investors, really had a tough go of it. Is it just yeah. simply non-diversification? You know, like on a CFAE kind of chat, most hedge funds are just under diversified.
1: I think um, yes, I, I think that's partially the case. Um, but in in a world, Tom, of suppressed volatility, um, in which you're being paid two percent management fee and twenty percent or thereabouts yep. of the profit, uh, in order to deliver alpha, there's yep. a so- need. Uh, there's a need to be non-diversified and yep. concentrated, making your best uh, bets. I'm, yep. a, I'm very fond and friendly with David Einhardt, and I have the absolute um, most respect for him as an investment manager and as a poker player. I am both as well. And uh, yeah, I think he's currently at the World Series of Poker in Las Vegas participating. You can watch it on ESPN Live tonight. Um, and um, you know, he plays the odds. He's very, very smart. And I'm totally confident, even though he's faced the performance problems, right. which beget redemption problems, that he will be a survivor, oh. as, will, um, as will the others that have faced pressure like Ackman.
0: Yeah, Doug Cass, thank you so much for a Thursday briefing. Greatly appreciate it. Doug Cass, of course, always supporting the dreaded Yankees. A major shout-out to all of you, the huge response we got two days ago in our interview with Russell Shorto in his new book, Revolution Song on six people in the Revolutionary War, including Mr. Washington, and also with Gordon Wood of Brown University. That was a real special moment, and uh, we thank you for your comments. We drive that conversation forward now with Robert Kaplan with my book of the summer, The Return of Marco Polo's World, thin, gorgeous, 12 or so essays that will make you brighter about the cacophony we're living in. And, Robert Kaplan, I want to dovetail these two books together. There's the moment in Shorto's book, where Washington meets Lafayette. I mm. had no idea for starters that Lafayette was 20 years old, yeah. when, or 23 rather, mm. when they met. And we forget about the relationship of the United States with England and France. Yeah. Now that's away from what you've been doing recently, but the president's gonna vault over to John Farrell's United Kingdom. How's he going to be greeted, or critically, how should he be greeted by the British?
3: Normally, uh, an American president going to the United Kingdom would be greeted as an ally, as a tried-and-true, trusted ally going back to the late 19th century. Because it was when the British Navy went downhill that, we, that Britain slowly started to hand off global responsibilities to the United States. So there's no greater historical relationship united by language, culture, and the world. But now we're in a different world. We're in a world where the American president has rhetorically disdained uh, Britain and, and other European allies and where britain is completely um, you know it, it, you know is completely absorbed with its own nightmare over leaving the european union so this is not going to be a meeting or this is not going to be a greeting in an, in, a, in that makes any sense historically going back about 130 mm-hmm. years
2: wasn't prime minister may one of the first if not the first to uh, to visit the white house
3: um i believe she was and i believe that she and world leaders all over particularly the chinese find whereas we may find trump vulgar and and in every way distasteful for leaders who have to de- world leaders who have to deal with an american president they don't know how to process him Particularly the Chinese, Uh, you know how how to analyze him, how to predict him, which is something that world leaders do with each other all the time, because they're all members of the same elite who've been to similar schools, have achieved what they have through normal meritocracy, and so when, for instance, of Trump says to. Trump says to Xi Jinping, let's be friends. We'll make we'll make a deal on the basis of friendship. The Chinese don't know how to process that in their culture friends don't make deals. You make deals with based on your personal interests that intersect with another power's personal interests. It has nothing to do with friendship. But just in
2: terms of the politics, this sort of cozy friendship with the global elites, isn't that part of the problem as well.
3: That's part of the problem, but it's nothing new. If you go back to the early 19th century, the late 18th century, uh, you look at Metternich, Talleyrand, Castlereagh, all of these people represented different powers, but they were all members of the same elite. In the early modern world, before the modern world, which is the world between the Renaissance and the Industrial Revolution, everyone was related to each other through royal (laughs) families. So, you know, everyone had some relationship to Queen Victoria. So there, so there the global elite was well, even more I- I integrated. I guess what I'm
2: trying to do is just get a better understanding of the prime minister's relationship with the president, given the fact that the I don't prime think she minister, has one, does well, she? given the fact that the prime minister was the first leader yeah. from the West to go into the White House... I don't
3: think it helps her why not uh, because he has no loyalty to anything or anybody everything is a zero-sum well, everything is a zero-sum issue for him one of the
0: things that changed here robert kaplan is it was tillerson and now it's pompeo here's a guy yeah. first in his class at west point yeah i guess he's getting high marks from everybody just to rebuild state how's he doing and will pompeo make a difference in helsinki
3: uh, yeah. First of all, Pompeo was treated with the suspicion at the CIA, but got high marks when he left because he has a history of caring for the agency he leads, you know, listening to advice. Uh, so Pompeo left the CIA, you know, with a very high reputation and, and at state he's seen as much better than Tillerson. Um, So that Pompeo himself is an improvement over the beginning of the Trump administration. But it always comes back to the president decides. That's the American system. If the president has an instinct for something, the secretary of state has to go with that. Because the secretary of state is not like the secretary of defense. The secretary of defense has a lot of equities. He can have a bad relationship with the White House and still be a successful secretary of defense. It's not true. At foggy bottom.
2: Let's forget the meeting with Prime Minister May and all the speculation about whether he'll be well-received or not and get away from that and get to the meeting with President Putin. Yeah. Now, traditionally, as you know, when two heads of state meet, it is incredibly orchestrated. What they're going to talk about has already been decided. The outcome of the meeting has already been decided before they have the meeting. We now have reports suggesting that we could have in a room just the President of the United States and the Russian President
3: and nobody else how unprecedented is this Um, it's unprecedented keep in mind that putin is always well prepared well staffed for every meeting he has ceos who have met with him say they have never met a more prepared impressive person Uh, whatever the issue you're going to talk to him about he studied it for at least a half an hour before meeting with you Uh, so putin is going to come prepared the question is will trump Based on experience, he's not. He's not going to be nearly as prepared, and there's a context problem. The context is it's fine to have a cordial meeting with your adversary, provided you're close with your allies.
0: What are we going to give away if the president slips up? I think we had a good idea of what he gives away with North Korea. What do we give away with
3: Mr. Putin? At this point, I can't see anything because the Russians have interfered to a greater or lesser extent in our electoral process, allegedly. Um, And... um a, right. a, 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 you know, Ukraine, <clears throat> uh, Syria, Crimea. Right. So it, it, it. we're in a weak position. We don't have much to yeah. give away at this point. I, I, in the time we got
0: left, um, I'm sending four or five books to a student who will do international relations at New York University. And it's the usual nigh power and interdependence. Yeah. I threw in in a weak moment. I threw in a Kaplan book uh, as well. Uh, into this, I did uh, William yeah. Easterly's Great White Oh. White, you know bill easterly's classic book blah, yeah. blah 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 what's the book right now our list our listeners should get that you just say is so immediate what's the book right now where robert kaplan says just
3: shut up and read this i said talking about my own book no so you your mean? other people's books. Oh, all right i yeah. want
0: to know what's out there that needs to be read right now
3: um henry kissinger's first book written when he was 26 years old a world restored
0: fascinating because I've and read diplomacy yeah,
3: yeah. Uh, this is when it was a young Kissinger absolutely brilliant with 26 with the mind of a 70 year old uh who has no assistance nobody editing him he does it all in his you know in his dorm room or so is and it so. dated uh, no that's why it's urgent um, and what it's about is how elites from different European countries constructed a world order at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, and the lessons it teaches about conservatism, realism, are timeless.
0: And this is fascinating. I mean, I mean, my book of the year a couple years ago was on world order, or whatever those essays. Yeah.
3: Um, the thing. This is where you get the real young, brilliant. 20 year old without handlers without handling yeah. this is kissinger yeah. without handlers without editors etc fascinating that's
0: great jeffro i have to read
3: that yeah i want
2: to see tom Keane without
3: handlers on yeah Bloomberg
0: Radio. I, I fall can apart you, can you i imagine? mean i completely fall apart
2: you, you really know? do i do what were you I asking mean, when the show began baby wipes
0: yeah, no, it was a mess over wipes. here. You, know, I, you, you
2: wanted know, the desk clean. The
0: turret that we're in, I wanted the desk you know,
2: just Robert Kaplan, have you seen this side of Tom King? N- does no. It, does he not no. show this on TV? Yeah. I no. think it happens when he comes into the No, they, they studio.
0: use Q-tips on TV. Is that right? Yeah. They do. <laughs> Robert Kaplan, uh, thank you really so much. Really stuff, Robert. Just, thank you. Just wonderful book, The Return of Marco Polo's uh, World. Really can't say enough about it. Eight, 12 essays, including two fresh and new ones on the ever-changing... Relationship of China and across Eurasia as well. Mr. Kaplan is with Ian Bremer at uh, Eurasia Group. Right now, as we talked to Robert Kaplan moments ago with Eurasia Group, this is a joy to revisit where we are with Ben Steele with the Council on Foreign Relations. He's their director of international economics, which means he th- he tells me what to do when I do panels there uh, and, and, and stuff. And right now, the, the panel that would be great with a president traveling to Europe is the idea of a new Marshall Plan. To your wonderful book, The Marshall Plan Dawn of a Cold War, if we needed a Marshall Plan right now, would this president have done it?
4: No, I would go further than just looking at the money, Tom. It's not just that this uh, president wouldn't play Santa Claus, which is probably how he thinks about the the Marshall Plan. But so many of the institutions that we take for granted today as pillars of the post-war liberal order, for example, the World Trade Organization, um, created in 1947 as, as an accompaniment to the Marshall Plan, the European Union and NATO were direct offshoots of the Marshall Plan, it's it's actually inconceivable that we right. could have an EU and NATO today without the Marshall
0: With, Plan. Within this is his desire for de- 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 the Europeans to put up their fair share. I saw a bar chart that clearly shows most of them are not. How do you respond to that? Is the president onto something?
4: Like- oh, w- w- without question. I mean, we we've been pressuring the the Europeans for for many years to to boost their. Um, commitments on uh, defense spending. Uh, this certainly preceded this uh, president, and he's right to highlight it. Uh, but the way he does it is is, is dangerous because the so-called Article Five yeah. security guarantees um, that we are extending to our NATO allies in Europe are are critical. To the um, uh, right. effective functioning of that alliance, and you should not be undermining. But that as
2: you case. as you point out, Ben, I mean, we should let's maybe not refer to it as the Marshall Plan just for this conversation, and refer to it to what it was called. It was the European Recovery Plan. Yes. it was because Europe was on its knees. Um, Europe is not on its knees, and uh, Ben, to your point, they haven't been spending enough on uh, on military spending. So, what is the right approach to get them to do that?
4: Well, uh, it's a, it's both a combination of, of uh, friendly cajoling. Um, and making clear to the, the Europeans that their own security is at stake here with um, uh, Russia clearly um, ratcheting up its uh, aggressive actions on NATO's borders, particularly in, in, in the Baltics. Um, uh, I, I think this can be done without undermining the cohesion of the um, of the alliance. I think right now, yeah. President Trump is really playing into Putin's hands by doing that. So
2: certainly not my job to take a position on this. So this is really just a question. But the approach that he's taking right now is basically saying just that. You've taken the NATO guarantee for granted. You haven't spent enough on the military. You know that we will. Um, and therefore, you've taken the whole... Institution for granted, um, have they?
4: I, I, No, I don't think that would be fair. The um, uh, Article 5 security, mutual security guarantees have only been uh, invoked once in the alliance's history. And that was after September 11th, 2001, when this country was attacked. Yeah, uh, And America's allies uh, invoked Article 5 um, to support us. And they did in Afghanistan. So they did step up. It would be wrong to see them as free riders. They they haven't been
2: on trade, have they been?
4: No. I uh, if you look at tariffs broadly in the developed world, Canada, the EU, the United States, um, um they're they're roughly equivalent. Um, President Trump uh, rightly emphasizes that um, uh, auto tariffs in the United States for cars coming into the United yeah. States are considerably lower than those in the EU, but he doesn't like to talk about our own tariffs on trucks, trucks, which yeah. are massively higher than those. Which date
2: back, I believe, to the, the chicken taxes. Yeah, exactly.
4: Yeah. So we're talking about 25% tax there, and he doesn't want to negotiate that. So there are there are good grounds, by all means, to for revisiting these things, and that could have been part... of of a productive discussion on a transatlantic trade treaty.
0: Ben Steele with us with the Council on Foreign Relations. And, of course, we celebrate the Marshall Plan. It's made a huge splash and a timely splash looking back to 1945 and 6 and 7. You've got another book, The Battle of Bretton Woods, which basically won every award out there about the history of how we piece together modern central banking. Mm -hmm. Is our central banking independence at risk? Lawrence Kudlow had a tweet out the other day, not directly talking about rates, but linking inflation to jobs. Right. There was a, I, I tweeted out and others. There was the first salvo: Is our independence of a central bank at risk?
4: Look, uh, some of Larry Kudlow's comments were unusual and crossed a traditional line. Or the administration typically did not. A McChesney
0: Martin line.
4: Yes. Did not comment on uh, monetary affairs. Having said that, um, Larry is in some, some sense pushing on an open door. What he's referring to is growing support among monetary economists for what's called uh, nominal NGDP N- targeting. That is uh, uh, effectively targeting nominal demand rather than inflation. Um, as a way of uh, stabilizing the the economy. So that's that's not really a a radical uh, direction in which he's pushing things. I would not be surprised to see the Fed moving in that direction. Do you
2: see more pressure coming down on the Federal Reserve, though? I mean, one thing this administration has done Mm -hmm. brilliantly is nominate really good people to the FOMC and, and steer well away from getting involved in monetary policy.
4: If you look at uh, Trump's appointments so far, um, there's no evidence that he's trying to steer rates in one direction or another. What he has done, um, uh, looking at the composition of the FOMC now, is put more of a deregulatory bias um, uh, into the um, organization that was expected and, of course, is very welcome in the industry.
0: Do you buy the nominal GDP story? I'm thinking of Scott Sumner at Bentley yeah. University and George Mason. I mean, the fact is Janet Yellen and Chair Powell, and maybe even Richard Claret as vice chairman, they're not thinking in that top-line animal spirit term, are they? You,
4: you, you know, I, I think there's a there's great logic behind um, uh, NGDP targeting. One could argue that if we had pursued a, a, a policy along those lines in 2009, um, uh, we would have loosened policy earlier. Mm-hmm. Which was clearly called for. My big concern about it, Tom, is that I think the support on the left for NGDP targeting is very soft. Um, yeah. That is, there's no inherent bias in NGT NGDP targeting toward loosening policy. Often, it can tell you to tighten policy when an in inflation it's targeting wildly but
0: asymmetric. It's, yeah, yeah
4: a, a, exactly. And I think the the moment an NGDP framework tells you to start tightening uh, uh, policy, yeah. the left will abandon support yeah. for it. And um, so, yeah, I'm no. not convinced it has legs.
0: Ben Steele, thank you so much for stopping by on a, a July Thursday. The book, The Marshall Plan, Dawn of the Cold War. For those of you trying to find the tapestry from World War II forward, and a course with General Marshall, you can do no better than The Marshall Plan. Ben Steele is with the Council on Foreign Relations. talk tomorrow's jobs report we usually start that two three four days ahead i've mentioned it once diane swank solves a problem grant thornton (laughs) looking for another solid month of employment diane the run rate on non-farm payrolls is 190 some thousand it's not supposed to be it's supposed to be like 120 right
5: Well, given our demographics, yes, and that higher run rate is also what's been pushing the unemployment rate down and continue to see it new lows. So the good news is the more we have that higher run rate, the more we have hopes of reengaging those on the sidelines, which we really do have um, people still on the sidelines. And we really want to bring them back in from the woodwork like we did in the late 90s.
0: Diane, the only thing I get more mail on than this is the Chicago Cubs this year. Other than that, (laughs) it's people go People like you say were fully employed, and I get so much mail that says, Diane Swank's out of her mind. We don't (laughs) see that in our neighborhood i is it? about full employment, my comments on Thank it, believe me, I get it on yes. Twitter,
5: too, and I understand it. I understand what it means, that it's not the same 3.8% we saw back in April of 2000 in terms of the unemployment rate. We do have more prime-age adults who are not engaged, people whose skills have eroded. Long-term unemployment has left them on the sidelines. And we also have some very deep crises that we have to address, the opioid crisis. We didn't have that in 1999 like we do today, where people – Literally, in their prime age, much of the reduction in particularly men participating in labor force, that means 25 to 54-year-olds, is because they're addicted to drugs, not just prescription drugs, but also now non-prescription drugs. And these are really big hurdles that we have to overcome and re-engage those people. And frankly, there's no magic wand to do it.
3: Diane Swank, I'm going to ask you to just... Go into the future a little bit, and if you were to look back at this time, let's say a year from now, are we going to be saying that this is as good as it gets?
5: Well, that depends. I hate to say that as an economist, but it depends on what we do with trade. We could have this expansion, make it to be the longest expansion in the post-World War II era and surpass that of the 1990s by making it into summer of 2019 if we avoid a major trade war. That's not where we're going at the minute, but we could de- we could, you know, back things off a bit and avoid a major trade war and get some longevity. That's what we need is we need to pace ourselves in this expansion because the longer the expansion is, it's like fine wine. It gets better with time. We have more of a chance of actually bringing back those workers yeah. who have been left on the sidelines.
0: That, that you've heard of Keynesian theory. That's the Mogan David theory. <laughs>
3: Um, Diane let's let's just uh, rather than the hope let's just uh sort of play out the scenario that there is a trade war that uh the Chinese and the United States fail to reach some kind of consensus uh or if they do it is uh in a way obscured by price increases that are already filtering into the economy what's your best case scenario there
5: Um, Best case scenario Is that we get What we call A growth recession And that is That growth slows It continues But it slows And it fails To bring down The unemployment rate Further And may even allow The unemployment rate To rise again That's a growth recession Where you have growth But the unemployment It's not enough growth To accommodate Mm -hmm. those people Coming into the labor force And that still need jobs The other issue is of course That would derail Some of the wage gains And you do have of course Higher prices Tied to tariffs Tariffs are taxes And they're higher prices And we're already seeing them come through. The inflation is already beginning to come through. And the effects have been much larger than many people expected on even marginal tariffs. And that's because we're late in the business cycle. We don't have all that excess capacity wounds had to absorb these kinds of shocks without it being passed immediately yeah. on to consumers.
0: What is your 12-month forward GDP? We've got a broad range from all the different voices we speak to. Are you more cautious?
5: I'm cautious, um, cautiously optimistic that we'll stay close to 2% uh, in terms of our growth potential. I'm afraid of, though, even without a trade war, we're set up for what's called a fiscal cliff in the third quarter of 2019 because of the way our government has yeah. decided to spend a lot of money today. Well, it all ends in the yeah. end of the third quarter of 2019, which would precipitate in itself a growth recession at the end of 2019. Mm. And believe me, we've seen recessions in election years uh, before. Our government isn't that smart when it comes to figuring these policies
0: yeah. out. And, and, and to your point, buried in the news hole last week was the CBO report, which was a <clears throat> sobering reading, to say the least. Uh, thank uh, you so much. Diane Swank with Grant Thornton, just always good. She gives us such value, particularly on Fed Day. Uh, we're thrilled to have her on with Scarlet Fu and her Fed coverage uh, to give uh, perspective as well.